0: Acts chapter 13 verses 42 through 52 we'll be finishing up Acts chapter 13 this morning Acts chapter 13 verses 42 through 52 and by way of reminder where we're at in the text Paul has concluded his message in the synagogue in the city of Pisidia in Antioch the remainder of chapter 13 will tell us the reaction that his words received so first the immediate reaction of the Jews that were in attendance on that Sabbath day, and then their reaction a week later on the next Sabbath. Following that is the reaction of the Gentiles, who were also present, and finally we'll see the reaction of the city officials to Paul and Barnabas. It's been well said that you cannot control what happens to you, but you can control how you will react to what happens to you. We are responsible. We're each responsible for our reactions to the Word of God. Let me read Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district but they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the holy spirit this is God's word we see in verses 42 through 43 the immediate reaction paul concluded his message As you would expect, he made an appeal for those who were in the audience to trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for justification. And we discussed that justification means to be made right before God, to be declared not guilty, to be given the same standing before the Lord as the Lord Jesus himself. Paul also gave his listeners a warning. You've heard the truth. You will ignore or reject it to your own spiritual peril. And the effect of Paul's words upon that congregation in the synagogue was encouraging, to say the least. We read, they kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. So, so excited was the audience, they could hardly wait a week to hear more. And they did not just invite Paul and Barnabas to return. They begged them to tell them more about the promised one who is Jesus of Nazareth. We rarely observe this kind of excitement in our churches, but we should. What if you left this place each Sunday longing to hear more of God's word? Such a desire would not be because I'm so charismatic or so intriguing uh, it would have nothing to do with the preacher. The initial response of the crowd had nothing to do with Paul's eloquence or his ability to, to move an audience. In fact, Paul's critics would later say of him, and this is in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So it wasn't because Paul was just so great with his words. The reason the crowd in the synagogue responded as they did was because Jesus was making good on his promise. What promise is that? Well, we read it back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So this is not about Paul. This is about what the Holy Spirit is doing through the word of God spoken by Paul. If there's one consistent message in the book of Acts, it is this. The acts of the apostles are the acts of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no church. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no missionary journeys. There would be no success or results in preaching. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no stirring in your heart when you hear the Word of God. Make no mistake you are responsible for how you respond, but you are positioned to respond by the work of the Holy Spirit. So any conviction or encouragement that you might feel is the Spirit that's moving within. Paul and Barnabas have only spoken to two groups of people in the city at this point, Jews and God-fearing proselytes. Not a word that we use every day, proselyte. Both are found in the synagogue The Jews, of course, are descended physically from Abraham. They share the same bloodline as Paul and Barnabas. They're Israelites. The proselytes, on the other hand, are non-Jews. They are Gentiles who have chosen to convert to Judaism. Uh, It's often helpful if you have a Bible that has a middle column or notes along the bottom to read the corresponding notes with the verses. For example, in my Bible here, where it says in verse 43, God-fearing proselytes, I can go over to the margin, and it says, i.e., Gentile converts to Judaism. So often those notes are very helpful to understand more of what the text is talking about. That means that these proselytes are, if they are men, some are women, the men receive circumcision. All proselytes agreed to observe the law of Moses. They are considered full-fledged Jews. So those that filed out of the synagogue followed Paul and Barnabas, and their enthusiasm could not be suppressed. With the result that these two teachers spent the next week speaking to them more about the Messiah, who he is, why he came, what his death and resurrection meant for their lives. And it's possible that some believed because we read, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Before you can continue something, you have to start it in the first place. So evidently some had begun already in the grace of God. They'd at least opened their hearts enough that God was able to reveal his undeserved love that he offers to them in Jesus Christ. Now we don't know if any of these Jews who began with the grace of God were yet believers. We don't know that for sure, but they were heading in that direction. Many of us began in the grace of God before we actually made a decision to follow Jesus. I remember I was probably about 14 years old. I heard a message one Wednesday evening from a youth pastor about the return of Jesus. And I was not yet a Christian. Uh, At that time in my life, I didn't even believe there was a God. But that particular message, it shook me. It, It made me think that Jesus was going to suddenly come back and and find me smack dab in the middle of my sins, which is a bit ironic since I claimed not to believe in God, yet I was bothered by this message about the return of Jesus. I remember even going uh, that following weekend, I was going on a trip with some friends, and uh, just that whole trip was slightly miserable because I kept thinking about if Jesus shows up, I'm not going to be in a good place. Now, I didn't make a decision to, Follow Jesus for another couple of years. But my point is, the grace of God was working in my heart on that occasion and on other occasions that come to mind. I had begun in the grace of God, so to speak, and I'm sure you can relate in your own life. So during that week until the next Saturday, when the synagogue attendees would meet again, Paul and Barnabas continued to speak and share and sow these these gospel seeds. So we then, therefore, see in verses 44 through 46, the delayed reaction. We saw the immediate reaction, now we see the delayed reaction. Word spread quickly that these two teachers, these two compelling teachers, were planning to speak again in the synagogue. It says in verse 44, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So suddenly it's not just the Jews who desire to hear more. Now, there are Gentiles here as well, and perhaps this phrase, the whole city, is hyperbole. That's intentional exaggeration in order to make a point, but the point is is that a huge crowd had now gathered, and they were there to hear the truth of God. Looking around, the Jews, they they realized that, that Paul did something that they could never manage to do. That is, they aroused the interest of the Gentiles. Paul drew a crowd. It wasn't really him, the Holy Spirit, but in their minds, Paul had drawn this crowd. And the result was, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting things, the things spoken by Paul. Jealousy uh, is a powerful emotion. I've pointed out before the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is the desire for something that you don't have, something you don't have but want to have, a possession, a position, popularity, a person. Jealousy, on the other hand, wants to hold on to what you do have. If envy is desire to obtain, jealousy is desire to maintain, to protect, to ensure against the loss of something. And jealousy is not always negative. Remember, God is described as a jealous God in Scripture. So when His people go after false gods, the Lord desires to maintain their loyalty. He's jealous of them. He wants to protect the relationship that's being threatened. Often, however, jealousy in our experience is negative because it's distorted like so many other things by sin. In this case, in the case of the Jews in our passage here, Their jealousy was definitely of the sinful variety. They craved the influence that Paul had over the Gentile crowds. They lusted after the power to draw people to their synagogue. And of course, their jealousy revealed their motives. Paul only desired to preach the word of God in order to point people away from himself toward Jesus. The Jews desired to preach the word of God in order to point people to a religious system that reflected their own desires. And they could not stand the fact that Paul was doing what they could never manage to do, get and hold the attention of these people. And jealousy, like so many other, other sins, is rooted in pride. The Jews who did not heed Paul's words are determined to hold their positions of influence and power In the city. And so in order to combat Paul's influence at this moment, verse 45, they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. In other words, as Paul continued to point out how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, the leaders of the synagogue, they they refuted these claims. As Paul demonstrated how from the Scriptures, faith in Jesus brings forgiveness and freedom from sin. The leaders of the synagogue, they denied these things. To call God's truth a lie is blasphemy. In fact, to do so can lead to what Jesus called the unforgivable sin. Matthew 12.32, Jesus said, Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Either in this age or in the age to come. There's a lot of confusion that surrounds what the unforgivable sin is, the unpardonable sin. So let me just explain that briefly here. Speaking against the Holy Spirit is simply refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to draw you to Jesus. If you do not come to Jesus for forgiveness, then you cannot be forgiven. I believe that's obvious to all of us. If you do not come to Jesus for forgiveness, then you cannot be forgiven. If you persist in resisting the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and resist His revealing of truth, then you will ultimately be lost. So the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of rejecting the gospel. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven. In in this life, there's always hope to embrace the Word of God. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity to embrace the gospel. But there does come a point, obviously, and that point's called death, when those opportunities are gone forever. Rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ is blasphemy of the Spirit. Simply what it means. The only sin that's unforgivable is to ultimately reject Jesus Christ. What the Jews are doing here in Pisidian Antioch is blasphemy. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So Paul clearly states that the promises about the promised one were promises that were first given to who? First given to Israel. Because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, Paul made sure that his very people, his brothers and sisters in the flesh, he made sure they hear the gospel first. This is for you. Now keep in mind also that not every Jew that heard him rejected God's word. We've already read that some had begun in the grace of God. The majority of the Jews listening to Paul, however, rejected his message. Many seeds had been sown the week before. But like the seeds that fell along the side of the road in Jesus' parable, these seeds, these seeds, they were snatched away by the adversary. And notice how Paul words his rebuke. He says, you judge for yourselves, or you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. He did not say that God judges you unworthy. You judge yourselves unworthy. And the fact is, We are all unworthy of eternal life. The wages of sin is death. What is a wage? A wage is something that you work for. A wage is something that you earn for the work that you have performed. So when you fall short of God's standard in thought, in word, or in deed, which is what the Bible calls sin, falling short of God's standard, when you do that, then you earn a wage. You go to collect your paycheck, and what you receive for serving sin is death. That means that in order to earn eternal life, you have to live up to God's standard. No one's ever done that or could ever do that. So in and of yourself, you are unworthy of eternal life, as am I. To be worthy of something is to earn the position It's to achieve the status. It's to obtain the goal. And none of us has or will earn, achieve, or obtain eternal life by our own efforts. Yet the the message that Paul had preached in the synagogue is this. You are not worthy of eternal life, but Jesus Christ is. But Jesus Christ is. Jesus earned, achieved, and obtained eternal life by his own efforts. He did what you and me could not do. That means that Jesus always perfectly met the standard of God. He never sinned. You ask, why is that good news for me? It's actually not. The good news for you is that Jesus Christ died as a sinner. He perfectly met God's standard. That's not good news for us. That just shows us what we can't do. The good news for us is that Jesus, the one who met God's standard perfectly, died as one who did not. Died as a sinner. He never sinned, but he was judged as if he did everything that you have done. Jesus took upon himself the punishment for the sins of the world. Then he rose from the dead, and he rose into what? He rose into eternal life. And he offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Eternal life does not only mean that you will live in fellowship with God forever. It also means that you become a partaker, a participator in the life of God right now. It means both. It means both. Jesus Christ is worthy of eternal life. And the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6.23. So the only way, the only way that you can judge yourself unworthy of eternal life is to reject the gift of God. It's not difficult to receive a gift. You just reach out and accept it. It's also not difficult to reject a gift. You just simply refuse to take it. Verses 47-49, through we see the counter-reaction. Because the Jews rejected the word of God in this city, Paul says, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 46. Then he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And what he does is he strings two verses together. Again, your Bible, like my Bible, probably has... The second part of verse 47, written a little differently. Maybe it's indented. Maybe it's written in all caps. And the reason is because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Notice those things as you read your New Testament. What Paul does is he takes Isaiah 42, six and Isaiah 49.6 and he puts them together. And so they say, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Those verses, first of all, apply to the Messiah, Jesus is the light that shines upon the Gentiles. He is the one who offers salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why we support missions. That is why we pray for missionaries, because the name of Jesus must be proclaimed to every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. But Paul here also applies these words of Isaiah to himself. He is fulfilling these words. He is going forth with Barnabas into the Roman Empire, into Gentile territory to be a light in a dark place. And really, that's what we are each called to do. I don't have to convince you of the darkness in our society. It doesn't take much convincing. The darker a room, the brighter, even the smallest candle appears to be. And so the darker our culture becomes, the greater potential we as a church, even little Little old us at uh, at Salem here, the more potential we as a church have to shine. Matthew five sixteen, Jesus said, "Let your light shine before men, in such a way that you may that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father, who is in heaven." So much of the influence you have as a Christian is simply by serving your neighbor, in love. Letting your light shine. Opening your mouth when God gives you the opportunity. But simply letting your light shine. You know, we learned the song in Vacation Bible School, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. There's some powerful truth there based on the words of Jesus. It just means let your good works that God is motivating you to do, let those shine. Let people see them so they will see Jesus in you. The moment of rejection by the Jews, what did it do? What opened the door for acceptance by the Gentiles? Here's the reaction of the Gentiles. Verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. There was intense excitement as they realized this message of deliverance was for them to receive as well. They were excited about it. We could probably use some of this excitement in our midst at times. If you were a Christian sitting here this morning, there was a moment in your life when the word of God excited you. There was. If you're a Christian here this morning, that was the moment of your salvation. Because the the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, it so worked into your heart that you realized that you could be free from the burden of guilt and shame. Those feelings that are generated by sin. You realized that you could be free from trying to win God's acceptance. You simply rested in the fact that Jesus won God's acceptance on your behalf. You rejoiced in the fact that Jesus took your guilt and shame upon himself on the cross. You acknowledged by faith that Jesus rose from the dead so that you too can have life and have it abundantly. If you're a Christian, in some form or fashion, those things happen to you. The excitement generated by what Jesus had done and your realization of it. So where is that joy and excitement today? And this is for me as well. Where is it today? Does the Word of God, does it, does it still move you when you read it? Does the potential of what God can do in and through you as you trust in His promises Does that still stir you? If Jesus is still your first love, then excitement for him should be the rule, not the exception. But for too many of us, again, me included, that joy is often an exception and not the rule. So we need to pray. We need to pray that God will stir up our joy Once more, the joy of our salvation, that we can fall in love with Jesus all over again. Clearing away anything that's keeping us from seeing Him clearly, even if that thing that's keeping us from seeing Jesus clearly is religious duty. Too often, we we Christians, we get so focused on going through the religious motions that we miss the one that the Bible reading and prayer and worship are supposed to focus our sights upon. You know, you can miss Jesus for the religious activity, the good religious activity. Because all those things that we do, gathering together as brothers and sisters, worshiping, reading the Bible, prayer, the purpose of them is to give us a clear vision of Jesus, a clear view. They should clean the lens of our glasses, so to speak, so we can see Jesus better. Verse 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This is a a difficult verse. Difficult because it sounds as if those who believed in Jesus only believed because they were chosen or appointed by God to do so. This is a verse that scholars, commentators go round and round about. But this verse, like every other verse in the Bible, it has to be read in the context of what's happening in the passage. So what is happening? Well, this is what's happening. Paul's Jewish audience had been prepared by the Old Testament to recognize and believe in the Messiah when he arrives. But what happened? Many of them missed him. They rejected the truth about Jesus. They hardened their hearts against Paul's message. So the very ones that should have recognized Jesus Christ did not. As we read, they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so then Paul turns to the Gentiles. Now, these are not proselytes. These are not converts to Judaism. These are not people who are in this huge crowd. These are not people who understand anything about Jewish law or religious expectations. They don't know that stuff. These are people who simply hear the promise of forgiveness, freedom, and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, and they respond. Like, that's good. We got it. So why did they respond in faith and weren't even prepared to by the Old Testament? And so many of the Jews did not, who should have recognized the Messiah when he came. Well, these Gentiles, they responded because they humbly recognized their sin. They, in humility, received God's word. They did not willingly rebel against the word of God. Their hearts were open to what Paul proclaimed, not closed by jealousy and pride. Their hearts were opened, and because their hearts were opened, they were in a position to hear, understand, and believe. So another acceptable translation of verse 48 could read, as many as were positioned for eternal life believed. As many as were disposed toward eternal life believed. These Gentiles' hearts, they were prepared by the Holy Spirit, no doubt. No one is in a position to believe without the the preparation, that that pre-work, of the Holy Spirit but neither is anyone forced to believe in Jesus the hearts of these Gentiles were positioned by the Holy Spirit so that when they heard the gospel from Paul's lips many chose to believe many simply chose to believe they did not harden their hearts against what Paul was saying God can work with the humble heart God can work with the heart that is willing to recognize its own sin A heart that is hardened, on the other hand, even by people that should have recognized their Messiah when he came. If that heart is hardened by jealousy or by pride, yes, the Holy Spirit will draw that heart, but the Holy Spirit is going to allow you to resist if you insist on resisting. The Gentiles did not. Did God know who would believe? Of course. God knows everything. God knows who will believe the gospel and who won't. But there's no need to read into this verse, that is, verse 48, there's no need to read into this verse as if God chose some for heaven and chose some for hell, and that the individual choices had nothing to do with the individual salvation. Because they the Gentiles had not hardened their hearts like many of the Jews had done. A number of their hearts were predisposed to respond, positioned to respond, and respond they did, as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And what happened, it says immediately, these new believers began to share about the Lord Jesus. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. This is a spontaneous reaction. I mentioned before that this city, in Antioch, was a major military and administrative city for the whole region. So people are coming and going regularly, passing through the city. And in this way, those who received the word of the Lord, they passed it on to others. And it wasn't long before this message wasn't long at all before this message was being taken to other towns and villages as well. And so in verses 50 through 52, we see the final reaction. Well, as you can imagine, the spreading of God's word through the Gentiles only infuriated the Jews even more. What they had been trying to do for years, Paul had been able to do in a matter of days that is, spread a message. Now the Jews attempted to spread a message about God requiring circumcision and eating certain foods and only associating with certain people and dressing a certain way. Sounds like some churches, doesn't it? All of those things I just mentioned and more are regulations and rules that are found in the Old Testament. They were preached every Saturday in the synagogue. But in proclaiming these religious standards, many of the Jews, they they missed the whole point of the Old Testament. They missed the whole point. What's the point of the Old Testament? It's to point people toward the Messiah. It's to prepare people for the Messiah. And now the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He is not a rule to obey. He is a person to follow. Jesus is not a regulation to maintain, but he is a person who sets you free from the burden of expectations that you can never perfectly perform. Remember, Paul said in his sermon, Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you cannot be free through the law of Moses. That is the law of Moses, the religious rules and regulations. They can never set you free from your bondage to sin. They only reveal your bondage to sin. They only reveal how you and me don't measure up. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does the law do? Well, it tells us how to live. The problem is we can't live that way. And so what do we find out when we try to obey the law? find out that we're sinners. And that's the the purpose of the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the Jews are preaching a message every Sabbath day that did not appeal to outsiders. They themselves, they cannot live up to the expectations of God's perfect law. How much less could a Gentile? I mean, not really appealing, is it? Why would you want to be a part of that club? Those people can't even live up to their rules and regulations and standards. How do I have any hope? Rules and regulations are burdensome. They're burdens, but the message of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died and rose again so that you and me can be approved by God. Apart from trying to keep rules and regulations. Our approval from God does not come through our performance. It comes through Jesus. When you become a Christian, you no longer try to earn God's approval. What you do is that you rest in the fact that you have received God's approval because of what Jesus has done for you. You no longer live under the guilt and fear of never being able to meet the expectations of religious rules and regulations because Jesus met every standard of holiness. He met every standard of holiness. And through faith in him, God sees you just as holy as his son. Therefore, the Christian obeys God out of love for what God has done. The whole motivation has changed for why you obey. The religious man or woman who is still in their sins, they obey God out of duty because they fear they will never measure up. And guess what? They're right. They won't. The good news is that Jesus Christ did for you what you can never do for yourself. I say that a lot, and I'll keep saying it. That's the good news. Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. He sets you free from your sins by receiving punishment, your punishment, for those sins. He sets you free from the crushing guilt at you never measuring up to God. And he sets you free from that by measuring up to God for you. He gave you the Holy Spirit so that the power to live for God is now an internal reality instead of an external, impossible expectation. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That means free to obey, free to serve, free to follow God out of love. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in the heart of every Christian through the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5.5. And that is news that the Gentiles will grab a hold of, and they did. But instead of realizing that such freedom was also available to them, the Jews, it says in verse 50, incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. You see, these Jewish communities and these Roman cities, they often depended on wealthy benefactors to help them build their synagogues. Donors, basically. Supporters. God-fearing Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism. They would give of their resources to help maintain these synagogues. In this case, there are devout women of prominence that are mentioned. These are Gentile women who have means, who have wealth, who have not converted to Judaism, but who do worship worship the God of Israel, who attend the synagogue, and the Jewish leaders able to persuade them and the men who are in positions of leadership in the city that Paul and Barnabas are upsetting the peace. So they incited the influential women and city officials by claiming that Paul and Barnabas were inciting the inhabitants of the city. Not true, but they convinced them of that. And the reaction is they drove them out. However, the word of God had already been sowed, and it had already begun to bear fruit. It was spreading, it says, throughout the whole region. And even though this was not a desirable way to leave, Paul and Barnabas understood that it was the Lord closing the door. Anytime it's made clear that the messengers of the gospel are no longer welcome, guess what? That is a sign that God is moving them to their next destination. might not be a very pleasant sign, but it's a sign. Time to move on. So don't view closed doors as lost opportunities. View them as a means by which God is going to open another door. In fact, is already prepared another door to open. Following the instructions of Jesus to his disciples, when they were not received in a town or a village, what did Paul and Barnabas do? He says they shook off the dust of their feet and protested against them. This is obviously symbolic. They got to the edge of town. They literally removed their sandals and beat them together. When you walk on dusty roads, your sandals gather a lot of dust, and you have these dust clouds flying in the air. And the message is this. The city is under judgment for rejecting the servants of God. By rejecting God's servants, they rejected the message that God's servants brought. But not everyone was under that judgment because we, we know that many had believed in that city. And we read of the newly established church at the city Antioch in verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Here it is again. The Holy Spirit brings joy. So to be filled with the Spirit is to experience joy. And to experience joy is a sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit. The two go hand in hand. And even though those in the city who rejected the gospel are now under judgment... The new believers are rejoicing in the change that the Holy Spirit has brought to their lives. They will continue to stay there, even though Paul and Barnabas are gone, they will stay there to continue to be a light in that dark place. You know, we should never despair when those around us reject God's word. Even though Paul and Barnabas had to flee the city, the church was strong, it was thriving. The the, the health of our body, the health of our church, has nothing to do with the response of those around us to the Word of God. It does not. It has nothing to do with the antagonism of the culture. The health of our church has everything to do with whether or not we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our midst. That's all that matters. Not how people respond to God's Word. How we are responding to the Holy Spirit. And so we see in this passage, we've seen these various reactions uh, to the word of God. Some embraced it immediately. Others appeared to latch on, but when a week had passed, their pride influenced them to reject it. Still others, these Gentiles, they opened their hearts to allow the word to penetrate and to take root. And finally, we saw this group, this uh, group of leading and wealthy men and women drive the messengers of God's word from their city. Many different reactions going on here. And those that believed the written word of God embraced the living word of God, which is Jesus. And as a result of their reaction, again, they were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is the, is the standard for the church. That's where the church should be. There's no secret path to joy. There's no hidden path to a life that's filled with the power and the presence of God. It's very simple. It's not enigmatic. It's not confusing or complex. It all simply depends on your reaction to God's Word. It all depends on what you will do with Jesus. And so there is this, this moment in your life, if you are a Christian, when you believed what the Word of God says about Jesus. But hopefully you did not stop there. Because every day, you have a choice about how you will react to God's Word. And I'm, I'm not saying that, that you're rejecting Jesus. I'm saying that every day you can choose to receive God's Word or to reject it. I'm saying that you are deciding whether you are allowing the truth of God to set you free to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord and a life that is useful in His hands. Every day, you decide how you will respond to God's Word. Do you want to experience continual joy? Of course you do. We all do. Do you want to experience a continual sense of God's presence? We all do. God created us with that desire. So then make sure you're embracing the truth of God as found in the word of God, as it points to the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word, in its richness, in its variety, in its depths, in its simplicity, Lord, it always meets us where we're at. Lord, I know this morning, I I trust this morning that that you had a word for each of us through what we've read and heard. Lord, we're each in a different place, but we all have the decision each day about whether we will respond to your word and how we will react to it. So Lord, help us to, to take what you've shown each of us this morning, to respond to it, to react to it in such a way that is pleasing to you and that is transformative in our lives. Father, thank you that you're faithful. Help us to be faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.